0: God's word says, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away... The shields of gold that Solomon had made, and King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze, and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door in the king's house. And as often as the king went out into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them in and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makah, the daughter of Absalom Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him, all from everything that he commanded him, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Reroboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David, his father, had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the yeah. Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and gave them into the hands of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben Hadad, the son of Tebermon the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to king Asa, and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makah, and all Chenaroth, with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived in Tizrah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away all the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Basha had been building. And with them King Asa built Geba, a Benjamin, and Mizpah. Now the rest of the acts of Asa, and all his might, and all that he did, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. Well, most Americans' knowledge of the United States presidents goes something like this Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Jackson. He was a president, right? Then maybe Abraham Lincoln? Did he come next? And then, um, yeah, then there's those ones like Woodrow Wilson with Teddy Roosevelt. Can't forget about him. And then FDR, that with four terms. Then was it maybe Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden? Is that, that, is that the presidents? No. Yeah, we kind of have. No, it's not. You're right. That's maybe 14 or so. That's not even two-thirds. And yet, there's a lot of presidents that we could maybe say their name and be like uh, i don't know i guess that was the president maybe i don't know because we are good at remembering the beginning of things and the end and then only the high points in between and that's kind of how we often are with the kings in the old testament we're in that section where if you read it in your daily bible reading if you do that and i encourage you to do that you get to the end and five minutes later someone says what'd you read and you go what about some kings? And they, oh, were they Israel or Judah? And you're thinking, uh, were they good or bad kings? Um, I don't know. There's more about them in the books of the Chronicles. I know that. And we're left going, who are these guys? Well, just to briefly review, we're in the midst of talking about these kings. And we've already had that first one, King Saul, and then David, then his son Solomon... And then we're in that time where it split after Solomon. And we just talked about Jeroboam, who took the tribes to the north. And kings goes back and forth. It'll talk about the northern tribes, now called Israel, and the southern times tribes in the south, Judah. And we've switched back, and now we're talking about Judah. And we're going to talk about three kings from Judah. Then they're going to tell of six kings from Israel, And then we get into the portion that most people know of in 1 Kings. That's the long set of stories of Elisha, Elijah, actually goes Elijah, then Elisha, and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel takes up a major portion. And yet, Solomon, and then we kind of jump to the prophets. Who are these guys? Well, we're going to look at them this morning, and we're going to see that these kings kind of all have something that depicts their reign for first Rehoboam in chapter 14 verse 21 through 31 we kind of see the departing glory of Israel and then in Abijam we see that only the lamp of David shines and then lastly King Asa we see a strong start a great desire to serve the Lord and yet sadly he does not finish well he ends poorly but first let's look at Rehoboam and remember he's the son of Solomon and it is due to him that the nation split and he reigns for 17 years beginning with when he's 41 years old. And the text adds that his mother, this is in verse 21, name was Naamah the Ammonite. And we're going to see that's important because the author mentions it again. Tragically though, Rehoboam leads the nation into worshiping false idols. They provoke the Lord by doing more sins than the gods, than the sorry, the kings before them. And what they did is they went after they worshipped the what are called the fertility gods of the nations around them. You have to remember this is an agrarian culture. In an agrarian culture, what is your life dependent upon? Crops, food. There's no store where you can go get fresh strawberries in January like you can in North Texas. There's no international food distribution centers. If your crops don't grow this year, you're going to be eating the seed that you're hoping to plant the crops next year. And you're going to be very hungry. And so whenever we think something is essential to life, I have to have this. We're always tempted to get those things outside of God's provision and they feel like it's essential and it is essential for life to have food and so they wrongly stop trusting the lord and they turn to these fertility gods and as you can imagine fertility gods they want to act out and so how fertility happens and that's why you will often read of cult prostitutes there with them we read that in verse 24 i think a little bit hyperbolically, the author says that they're worshipping everywhere. Every high hill had one of these places. Every green tree had an idol under it. And yet, it appears that Rehoboam is leading the nation sadly into sin. You may have heard the saying that people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. There's another saying, is that the only lesson of history is that people don't pay attention to history. Well, that gets played out here in the nation of Judah. Because notice what it says at the end of verse 24. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In essence, the author is saying, look, why did all those nations get removed? Because of their sin. You're doing the very things that now are going to happen to you. We looked at this quite a bit in chapter 9 because we were wondering, well, was God unjust? Was God playing favorites? Was this genocide? Was God getting rid of these nations unfairly just so he can give a special gift to his own? And we saw that, no, that wasn't the case at all. God was using Israel as a means for punishing sin. We saw that all the way back in Genesis 15 where God is speaking to Abraham and he says, look, you're not going to inherit this land, but rather your descendants are going to come. And it says in Genesis 15, 15, that they'll come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God did not have Israel just go in to have genocide because he didn't like those people. Rather, Israel were the agents of God's justice. Because the wages of sin is always death. And yet God was always clear to Israel, you are not beyond this. You yourselves can be the people who are under the devotion to destruction. That's why it says in Deuteronomy seven twenty six, and you shall not bring an abominable thing in your house and become devoted to destruction like it. And that was pictured in their life when they went into Jericho and they were supposed to devote it to destruction, but what did can do he brought those things into his house and then they lost in battle and so here all of that is coming to a head and the author is basically saying look don't you know what happened before why don't you think this is going to happen to you and so when you're a teacher or a parent and you see your child or student do something and you go didn't you remember when they did that last week and they got in Trouble? What do you think's going to happen to you since you just did that? And the author is saying the same thing. Well, they didn't pay attention to history. They didn't learn. And so now Egypt comes, we read in verses 25 to 28, and they attack them. And they so utterly defeat them that they take all of the gold from the temple that Solomon had brought in, all the gold from the king's house, and they take it to Egypt. And they're left with bronze shields. Bronze shields that only come out when Rehoboam comes in, and otherwise they're stored away in a treasury. And so, the first reign, the reign of Rehoboam, comes to an end. But then, at the very end, it says, "And his mother's name was Nama, the Ammonite." You may have noticed that the Bible at times can be quite sparse in details. We'd like more information. We'd like more, and yet, just gives us the bare bones. So, why would the author say two times, at the beginning of Rehoboam's description of his reign, and at the end, that his mother's name was name of the Ammonite. Why is this such a big deal? Well, basically, it's showing us that Rehoboam's sin and idolatry came naturally to him. Solomon should have expected this to happen when he goes and marries a woman who's from Ammon and worships false gods. We reap what we sow. That's why the command of the Old Testament and New Testament can be stated this way, Second Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the point is, believers should not marry, and I think there's other implications, but for now, should not marry non-Christians. Now, to be clear, that is not saying we shouldn't have any friends who aren't Christians. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We should be friends with unbelievers. Nor is the point if some reason you're married and then maybe you're saved afterwards or your spouse then decides they're not a Christian, is not saying, well, you need to get a divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, 12-14 says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Thus, if you're married and your spouse is not a believer, you have an opportunity to bless them. By your relationship to the Lord. You have a relationship to bless your children. As well, God instructs us in First Peter 3.1, giving instructions to wives, but we can apply it to husbands as well in its own context. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if even some of them do not obey the word. In other words, they're not believers. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. God may specifically have you with that unbelieving spouse to draw them to himself through your life, through your example and how you relate to them. So what is the point? The point is that God warns us of the danger of entering into a situation that is not best. Yes, God does use situations where there's mixed marriages, where one's a believer and the other is not. But you shouldn't necessarily choose to enter into that if you're a baseball coach and you're looking for an assistant, you wouldn't go find one who actually doesn't like baseball. If you like gardening and you want someone to help you in your garden, you wouldn't get someone who goes, you know, I don't really like being outdoors. So if you want your life and the things from your life, your children to honor the Lord, it doesn't make any sense to go, so I'll marry someone who doesn't love the Lord. Well, this is, should be the most important aspect of your life so you should want someone who's going to encourage and push you in those directions. And thus, for those of you who are single, I would encourage you that you shouldn't even date someone who is an unbeliever. Be friends with them, definitely. But every single couple that, is, that I've known who's been married and probably known hundreds of married couples, every single one always dated first. None of them just one day poop. Oh, well, we're married. How did that happen? <laughs> That's weird. They always started by dating. And they didn't always, when they had that first date, think, we'll get married. Sometimes they thought, oh, I'll just go with them. Uh, it's too awkward to say no. And then they fell in love, as we say. So don't even take the first step. Be friends, definitely. Be friends with many unbelievers. Share the gospel. Love them, but only date believers. And yet, the problem with idolatry is that it not only dishonors God, but it hurts you. And in the long term, it will never give you what it promises. And we see that here because these people are going to these fertility gods thinking, this will bless us, this will cause us to have wealth. And yet they are being destroyed. They are being judged for their sin. Think about the quick drop we have seen from Solomon to Rehoboam. When Solomon honored God, 1 Kings 4 said, And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Yet that peace was turned to conflict internally in the nation, that then split, and then conflict externally with Egypt. When King Solomon honored God, he had immense prosperity. 1 Kings 10.21 said, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was, was not considered as anything in the days of Rehoboam. And yet within a generation, what was considered as nothing, gold and silver, you know, we make our drinking cups out of that. Who cares? They can't scrape enough together to make a shield. They've gone from the age of gold, the golden age, to the occasional special celebration, bronze age. And all because they've turned from the Lord. And all of this is showing you that yes, sin, idolatry, it will give you joy and pleasure for a moment. But it can't last. We see this depicted in the life of Moses because it describes in Hebrews 11 his faith. And it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, notice it didn't say because there is no pleasure of sin. It talks about the. Leading pleasures of sin, it's there, and then it flees. And Moses could have enjoyed all of that, but he knew there's a much greater pleasure eternally, and pleasures even here on earth, if I obey the Lord. And so where are you looking to secure the good life? Where are you turning? If you turn anywhere besides the Lord, it will not last. It may bring joy for the moment but it will not continue. And we see that Rehoboam has looked in the wrong places, and his glory has departed. His joy has fled. And we see how much he's turned, even by what he names his son. And we see that next king, Abijam, in chapter fifteen, one through 8 And we see with Abijam, only the lamp of David shines. You may have noted before, heard me note, or others, that any name in Hebrew has an ab-e, that I is my father. So Ab-I-Jem is my father is Jom, or that would be a Y, like Jehovah or Jehovah Yahweh. That J can go either ways in different languages, like Fajita, not Fajita. Nonetheless, Abayam, well, who is Yom? Yom is the sea god. So Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is now naming his children, my father is the sea god he has completely turned even his children he's naming after false gods and so abijam Abayim, however you want to say that he only reigns three years he is a man full of idolatry and he has a mother Makkah. and we read in verse three that his heart was not holy to the lord like david his father now, you may know that Chronicles, which we read from earlier, tells of these similar kings. And there, the story's a little bit more favorable to Abijam. Except, the issue is what it just said. His heart was not wholly devoted to God. As Jesus said, the command is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Not, will a portion, you know, Sunday morning... And then when I talk about religious things, that's when God has me. But if I'm talking about personal finances or relationships or what I think life is about, well, that, that's another part of life. Well, that's the way Abijem tried to rule. And God says he sinned. And yet, though he sinned, we read in verse 4 and 5 that God still allows a lamp to shine in Jerusalem due to David's faithfulness. Faithfulness in all things except with Uriah. Now, of course, that is not saying David never sinned any other time. But it's saying, if you look at the big picture, David was leading the nation to worship God. David himself was worshiping God. Yes, he had this serious incident. It's still coming up years later. And yet, unlike Rehoboam, unlike Abijam, unlike Solomon at the end of his reign, David was leading the nation to worship. And So with some final words about continued war with Jeroboam, The life of Abijam, his description, comes to an end. Yet I wondered this week, I wonder if Jeroboam, as he sits in the north, is thinking, it's not fair. You know, Rehoboam, Abijam, they've gone and served these other gods. They still get a lamp in Jerusalem. That's not fair. How come they're not having their kingdom taken from them? How come they're not being told they're going to have all their descendants die? And the problem is we equate Being treated identically as being treated justly. And that's not true. You may have read in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable of a landowner. He goes out early in the morning to where you would hire workers. And he says, hey, come work in my field and I'll pay you all a denarii. And they all agree. And the landowner goes back out three hours later and he finds men still sitting there. And he goes, hey, why aren't y'all working? Well, no one hired us. So he brings them in and says, I'll pay you a denarii. And Jesus goes on. He goes up the sixth hour, the landowner does, and the ninth hour. And then he goes, even with one hour left in the workday, and he finds workers, and he says, come to my fields, I'll pay you a denarii. Well, the end of the workday comes, and the landowner begins to pay the workers. And the people who've been there one hour, he'd promised them a denarii, so he gives them a denarii. The people who'd only worked a few hours, promised them a denarii, so he gives them a denarii. And so you know what the people who've been working all day are thinking, uh-huh. We've been working all day. What are we going to get? And yet, then it says, But each of them also received one denarii. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us, who borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. It's not fair, they're saying. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a deny? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to choose what to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And that's the issue. The landowner gave them exactly what they deserved. The fact that he was more kind to others does not make him unjust. And the fact that God chooses to be gracious to some does not mean he's being unjust to the others when they get what they deserve. And yet, like the landowners, we sometimes treat treating people the same or treating them differently as being unjust. And yet God is not being unjust at all. He's being merciful to David's line and he's being just to Jeroboam's. And yet even the mercy to David's line includes discipline. They are losing, as we just saw, they're losing peace. They're losing prosperity. And God really had promised such loving discipline and faithfulness to David. In Second Samuel 7 where he said, I will be to your son a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And so God is being just to everyone, and he's being merciful to some. And we should have a similar confidence and hope as the southern kings of Israel, the nation of Judah, had. Because God has made similar promises to us. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Jesus is not there talking about any individual churches. No individual church will ever cease to exist. That will happen And yet. He's talking about his universal church. The church will grow. It will expand. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And so if the gates of hell are not going to prevail, no communist regime is going to prevail against it. No secular culture is going to prevail against it. And so we can go forth with confidence. He will be faithful to his promises. The question is, are we clinging to his promises? Or are we, like these people, turning to other things to secure what we need? Well, we see such a good godly king clinging to God in King Asa, the third king from Judah, in verses 9-24 through 24 of chapter 15. Because after three horrible kings, at least Solomon at the end of his reign, and then Rehoboam, and then Abijah, Thankfully, God raises up a godly king, King Asa, who does what is right in the eyes of David, as eyes of God, sorry, as David did. Now again, the point is not that he was perfect, but he is returning the nation to worshiping God. Now his reign begins in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, I and mean, he reigns for so long, forty-one years, that there will actually be seven different kings of Israel during his reign. And oddly, you may have noticed that his mother is also Maka, the daughter of Abisholam. Well, that was the mother of Abijah What's going on? Well, it could be maybe some incestuous relationship, but more likely the term mother is being used the way the term father is being used for David. In verse 11, chapter 15, we read, And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. Well, David wasn't his father. What does it mean? Well, it's talking about father in kind of a lineage, in a spiritual lineage, in a royal lineage. And so when it says that Maka, his mother, I think it's saying she is also passing on a lineage, an unfaithful lineage. And we see that because she specifically made some horrible object of worship to Asherah. And the question before us is, or before Asa, is are you going to be like your parent David, or are you going to be like your parent Maka? And I think this is showing us an important point, And that is that you're not determined by your lineage. Your family may have generations of dysfunction, of alcoholism and abuse. And that will be a challenge for you. But your life is not determined by what your ancestors were like. Influence, yes. Determined, no. On the flip side, generations of faithfulness to God does not mean you're going to be faithful to God yourself. Influence you, yes. Determined, no. And so the question is, is Asa going to be like David and follow the Lord, or is he going to be like Maka and seek the fertility gods? And we see by God's grace that he serves the Lord, He does what's right, and He removes the idols. He removes the cult prostitutes, and He even removes His grandmother from the position of power and destroys what she had made. Asa is living out the tough discipleship that God calls us to have. Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty-seven through thirty-nine, "Whoever loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me." And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Asa was choosing the long-term pleasure of God rather than the momentary pleasure of keeping family relations pleasant. I'm sure more than one family member said you know, Asa, if you do that, Thanksgiving's going to be pretty awkward. You know, when we celebrate the 4th of July, there's going to be grandma, and she's going to be like, you took my position of power. You destroyed my idol. And who likes awkward family relationships? I mean, just, just, she worships that, but we're not. Just, just let her do her thing. Let her be her, and you be you, and it's, just, it's no big deal. Because what do we want? We want peace. Let's just have harmony. Well, yes, we should want peace and harmony, but not at the expense of righteousness. And Asa follows the Lord, even though it cost him with his family. And then notice that Asa did all these things. And what does he do? Verse 14, 15. He starts bringing gold back. This is an indicator. Look, this is, we're back to the days of Solomon. We're having gold brought back into the temple, no longer bronze, gold back into the house, and so we see that Asa is returning the nation to where it should be, and yet we 're only given sixteen verses of his reign, and the next story tends to be looks like it is a picture of Asa in the end of his years turning from the Lord. So what happens is beginning of verse seventeen, we would have reread of. King Basha, from Israel, coming and building a new city in Ramah. Well, commentators note that Ramah is a very strategic place. It's about five miles north of Jerusalem. It sits on major trade routes east to west, going to the coast, and north to south. And here, his enemy is building a city. This is going to cut them off economically. This is going to put the enemy in their doorsteps that they could lead an attack from at any point well earlier we had read for us second kings 14 where asa you may have remembered had an army twice his size and what did asa do to defeat this army he cried out to the lord and the lord brought deliverance and victory but that's not what asa does this time this time he takes a different approach and he empties the temple of the silver and the gold and he then sends it with servants ambassadors to ben-hadad of syria and says hey why don't you take this present and break your treaty with israel and attack them and ben-hadad goes yeah that's a pretty good idea i'll take your money and he goes and attacks and what happens king basha from israel goes i gotta go defend my cities and he leaves so asa's plan works so all's well and good right well no there's Three clues in the text that what Asa is doing is not right. First, in verse 19, most English versions, the major ones, have something like, I am sending to you a present or a gift. Now, the Hebrew word can be present or gift. However, that same word most often means bribe. Here are three passages using that same Hebrew word and what God thinks about bribes. Exodus 23, 8. And you shall take no bribe same word for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right Deuteronomy 10:17 for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe same word Deuteronomy 27:25 cursed be anyone who takes a bribe same word to shed innocent blood and all the people shall say amen Now, all of those are about taking a bribe. They don't say giving a bribe, but I think the same implication is there. You shouldn't take the bribe, then you should never give it in the first place. And I'm sure as the diplomats went to Ben-Hadad, they didn't say, hey, we're trying to bribe you. I mean, that just doesn't really sound good in diplomatic relations, but it's quite clear that's what they're trying to do. Second, the fact that the temple is now emptied of gold again, I think is indicating that... Asa didn't do what was right in God's eyes. And third, even the fact that he's about to lose a battle should be pointing to the fact that something's wrong. Yet thankfully, we're not left with having to decipher hints and clues, for infinitely more important than any of that is what we see in 2 Chronicles 16, 7-10. Because there the same incident is recorded, and there it says, At that time, Hanani the seer came to ask the king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on, you will have wars. Dale Davis writes, Asa was a smooth politician, and his stratagem worked. As pragmatist, we admire that, and that is why we find the Bible so disturbing. For it tells us that success is no authentication of faithfulness. Circumstantial success and covenantal failure can exist side by side. And we have to be careful to distinguish between the results that we are seeing and honoring God. At times they look identical when in fact they might be radically different. To the human eye, Asa did what was right. I mean, he's the king. He's supposed to protect the nation. And isn't the nation now safe? Way to go, Asa. I'm sure he got many applause from many people in Judah. Yet to God's eyes... He did what was wrong because he achieved it by the wrong means. Let me give an example that challenges me and perhaps some of you. And that is, how do we get change relationally? Early on in life, I learned, my brothers are crying from their chicken pox. My mom goes and sees them. Ah, I cry about my chicken pox and I get attention. And I learned, as we learn at early age, How to use our emotions to manipulate people. And so if we cry, you may get attention. If you cause your parent or someone else to laugh and tell jokes and compliment them, they're more willing to do what you want. And if you get angry, you can wield it powerfully to bully other people, to do whatever they can just to get you to calm down. Well, what do you want? Just calm down. a James 1 19 and 20 says be slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god so we cannot confuse it being our siblings our parents our students our children or whoever might be changing their actions because you let them have it and thinking oh they changed they're now doing the right thing so god is pleased with how i'm acting You may get the right immediate results, but you may be dishonoring God. Like Asa, you may be winning the battle, but you are losing the war. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so Asa began well, and yet at the end he turns from the Lord. And we even see a judgment from God in verse 23 that he's lame in his feet. So he started out sprinting. He limps across the finish line. So is the point of all this, well, if you're honoring God, you're going to win all your battles. You're always going to be healthy. You're always going to have more wealth coming in. And if you're dishonoring God, you're going to lose battles. You're going to get sick. And you're going to be poor. Is that what we should glean from this passage? Well, no, because we are on the other side of the cross. We are no longer living in a theocratic state in which God has a unique relationship with any nation. Jesus even told the disciples, "You will be persecuted." We should not read these passages and draw a direct connection to us today. The outworking in our lives is going to look different. You may be honoring God and you may actually have more persecution because of it let me end with these two testimonies from christians the first one is about a man in america these are from randy alcorn he says in america a sharp looking businessman stands up at a luncheon he says before i knew christ i had nothing my business was in bankruptcy my health was ruined i'd lost my respect in the community and i'd almost lost my family then i accepted christ he took me out of bankruptcy and now my business has tripled its profits My blood pressure has dropped to normal and I feel better than I felt in years. Best of all, my wife and children have come back and we're a family again. God is good. Praise the Lord. The next testimony is a man in China, a disheveled former university professor who shares, Before I met Christ, I had everything. I made a large salary. I lived in a nice house, enjoyed good health, was highly respected for my credentials and profession, and had a good marriage and a beautiful son. Then I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, and as a result, I lost my post at the university, lost my beautiful house and car, and spent five years in prison. Now I work for a subsistence wage at a factory. I live with pain in my neck, which was broken in prison. My wife rejected me because of my conversion. She took my son away, and I haven't seen him for ten years. But God is good, and I praise him. For his faithfulness. Randy Alcorn then writes Both men are sincere Christians. One gives thanks because of what he's gained, the other gives thanks in spite of what he's lost. Material blessings and restored families are definitely worth being thankful for. The brother in China would be grateful to have them again. Indeed, he gives heartfelt thanks each day for the little he does have. And while the American brother is certainly right to give thanks, He and the rest of us must be careful to sort out how much of what he has experienced is part of the gospel and how much is not. For any gospel that is more true in America than in China is not the true gospel. Let's pray. O Lord, may we cling to the true gospel, not one of health and wealth now, but one that we do know promises that eternally. So Lord, would we be faithful when it will cost us? May we cling to you knowing that that cost has a much greater joy than any pleasure of sin might give us now. May we flee from those fleeting pleasures and run to you all the days of our life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.